Oh, Lord, it's such a such a weighty thing, such a important, vital priority in our lives to be able to glean from your word. And we need your help to understand what it is you would want for us to know this morning. And Lord, I pray, may the result of this morning be that we are stunned by the beauty of Christ. Oh, so much so we can't take our eyes off Him. So much so that our hearts are set aflame for Your Son and we obsess over Him. Can't stop thinking about Him. We want more of Him, so we want more of His Word and His Word gives us more of Him and we want to be more obedient, God. We need Your help to do all these things. So I pray for this morning. Prepare our hearts as we've now just sung and now that we can come under the proclamation of Your Word. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. A couple weeks ago, we started a discussion on unity within the context of the church. The title of the sermon is Unity, Spirit-Empowered, Christ-Exalting, God-Glorifying Pursuit, Part 2. And my main point is the same as it was a couple weeks ago, that we as a church, that we, you, let's personalize it, pursue unity because Christ pursued you. You pursue unity because Christ pursued you. So read with me the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. In one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, 
according to the according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You know, the theory and philosophy of unity is not new. Matter of fact, we are the United States of America. So every bit of the foundation, the founding characteristic of our country has at its core unity. Of course, that unity way back when was forged because a number of factions disagreed greatly on things of slavery, regional influence, amount of control from the government, powers of state and federal, among many, many other things. And so there was a compromise that was struck, thereby founding our country. Presidential historian Douglas Brinkley says this, quote, Unity has always been an aspiration. It seems like whenever we have foreign policy flare-ups, we use the word freedom. But when we have domestic turmoil, we use the word unity, unquote. You know, our current president peddles a message of unity, and as such, every previous president before him. But it seems we only get more divided. Now, you may ask, why is that? And you know, the church is not immune from division. And we may think, you know, as born-again Christians, as true Christians, as, as spirit-filled Christians, that unity is easy, or at least should be automatic, or, or shouldn't have to take so much work. You know, we need to look no further than even just Paul's letters to know that Scripture doesn't promise that. At all, our sinful hearts are at war within us and pride and selfishness. That's our default setting and unity is quickly threatened. And as a brief review to catch us all up from a couple weeks ago, we defined the type of unity we are to seek. And that is biblical unity. A unity first with Christ uniting himself to you. And from that reality, the people of God, the, the local church, this body right here are to be one in heart. How can we be one in heart? Because God has given us now a heart of flesh where there was a heart of stone. Now we have a kinship. We have a, a togetherness now. We've been transformed. We've been called. And, and Ephesians 1, 2, 3 have went over this. We've been predestined. We've been elected. We've been chosen by God. We've been made alive. We are now to serve one another. We are now to prefer one another. We're to be also one in fellowship. Now the fellowship that Christ prayed for in John 17, his high priestly prayer, this fellowship is so that our joy may be made complete. That's amazing that our unity is every bit a part of our joy. This fellowship also is proof. Think about that. It's, it's assurance that you're a Christian fellowshipping with Christ's church. And this unity, it transcends whatever it is the world calls unity. And this makes much of Christ's church. You know, the watching world, there's no hope. There may be some unity, but only for a little while. And then it doesn't last very long. It's not sustainable unity. So this unity within Christ's local church, it is evangelistic. John 17, verse 21. As God's people... His local church are united in the ways that He has prescribed. 
It manifests like this. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You know, we discussed first that we are to pursue, verses 1 through 3, we are to pursue this unity, and it is a worthy pursuit. It's a, it's a worthy pursuit to live a life that is humble, that is gentle, that is patient, that shows tolerance for one another. And this transformed life is impossible if it weren't for Christ. Which is why Paul, if you remember, Paul is a legal mind. And what do sharp lawyers do? They, they, they anticipate maybe questions you may have. They anticipate maybe what you may be thinking next. And so as Paul lays out in verses 1 through 3, this is the transformative life. This is transcendent life. This is life that leads to unity. Paul already thought, you're going to think this is impossible. Matter of fact, you may think I'm crazy for commanding you, for begging you, for for pleading with you to live this way. That's just why at the end of chapter 3, Paul preempts that and says, now to him who is able to do far more, abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. See, we're going to think life like this is impossible with so much turmoil and so much division going on all around us, which, with even so much conflict or division within Christ's church as it is. Life like this is impossible. So Paul reminds us, this life, this obedient way, it's outside of you. But it is a worthy pursuit. So we discussed that. And then second, where we left off, the last point we discussed was that this unity must be protected. Protected. You know, we aren't to pursue or attain this unity by compromise. You know, by accommodating things. By, by not standing on maybe truth that sounds unpopular and therefore we don't want to deal with all that drama. And therefore we may just... You know, walk that back a little bit. I mean, not, not, be so, not be so rigid on what God has said. You know, unfortunately, we've seen way too many, way too many churches, large, highly influential churches who take the gospel of Christ and actually empty the message of the actual gospel itself. Why? Because the gospel is foolishness. It's foolishness. To those who don't believe, therefore, it's curated, it, it's carefully prepared, it's delivered in such a way as to be able to be digested. More palatable, more ear-tickling. You know, the, the gospel's call to become a disciple of Jesus, to, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow Him, to be like Him, that's been removed. Replaced with Jesus is your homeboy. Jesus is your buddy. Yeah, he's your savior, but he does not need to be your Lord. This is a revised gospel call. And it's to come as you are, but stay as you are. The revised gospel call is to continue in sin so that grace may increase, period. Forget the remainder of the verse that says, may it never be. You know, churches that peddle this message, you know, they're... There's never really any doubting of salvation when this message is peddled. Why? Because the crowd's never asked to change. There's no demands on your life. So why would there be any doubt? There's never a charge to change anything. And this is why sanctification, growing in Christ's likeness, 
this has become a rarity. Now viewed as divisive. Being more like Christ is divisive and we have it backwards. Growing in Christ's likeness, that's the very avenue of unity. Unity with one another. Unity within the local church. Not with this world. You know, growing in Christ's likeness should increase your distinction from this world. Like, it it shouldn't decrease it. It should also increase and drive you to greater unity within his local body. You know, Paul outlines probably in the most rigid way in all of Scripture the gospel and its exclusivity. Verses 4 through 6. One body, the true church, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, one hope, and that's the hope of eternal glory when Christ returns, one Lord as Christ, one faith, God's truth revealed in His Scripture, one baptism, that which declares the believer united now with Christ in His death and His burial and His resurrection. And the one God, look at that in verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. What is that saying? It's saying that He's the Father of all, which is He's the source. He, he's the Creator. He's over all, which is He's transcendent. He's sovereign. He's through all. Which is to say He's imminent, but yet present. And in all. In other words, and in you all. Which is to say He's taking up residence. One God created everything, rules everything, permeates everything, dwells in the hearts of His people. Apart from this truth, there is no hope. There's no hope. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. First Timothy 2, 5. In the Old Testament as well. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35. The Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. And this is hard for our Americanized ears to hear. Because we love us some options. We love the right to be able to choose. And we don't like having limited options. We don't like being told there's one way. We don't like being told there's one God, there's one Spirit, there's one Lord, there's one faith. We don't like that. And the repetitive use of this word, one, is Paul, that which is screaming at us. This is there's no room for anything else. And so in order to protect unity within the church, this, the gospel, must be protected. J.C. Ryle said this, quote, to keep gospel truth in the church is even of greater importance than to keep peace. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the unity of hell. Unquote. So again, part one of this sermon certainly went more in depth on those two points. It is on our website. So we move on now, part two. Part two, verses seven through ten. In our next point, if you're keeping up with note-taking and our attempt to alliterate here the practical nature of this unity. And we begin a shift here in the passage starting in verse 7. Now Paul talks about spiritual gifts that God gives His people as a practical means for unity. And in verse 7 it says there to each one of us. So every believer, true Christian, you have been given a spiritual gift. 
And this verse tells us that it's been given by grace, meaning it's been unmerited, it's unearned, it's undeserved. This gift has been given according to the measure of Christ. If you just visualize Christ's infinite reservoir. And for this infinite reservoir of resources, it says there, he has measured. That's where we get the word metric. He metric, he measured, he portioned off a gift just for you. Specifically for you. This gift is something he works in you. Nothing you work or create in yourself. This is also not a gift you keep all to yourself. And not share with others. This gift is different maybe than how you're hardwired. Maybe some of you can are, are athletic. And some of you are musically talented. That's not what we're talking about here. Here, what we see is the practical key to unity. Our diversity. Diversity. You know, diversity and inclusion, those are popular words these days. You know, tomorrow I've been ordered to go get on a plane and attend the latest iteration of our government's diversity and inclusion initiatives. And I'm quite certain what I'm about to hear this week is nothing of what the Bible says about diversity. Matter of fact, there's a statement of diversity and inclusivity that comes from a very large influential church in Virginia, and it says this. We are a church community of various backgrounds and beliefs drawn together by the love of Christ. Our care for each other and passion for our community. At our church, all people are welcome and all means all. We believe that all people are created in the image of God, that all people are of sacred worth, and that Christ died for all people. We believe that God's radically inclusive love excludes no one. We welcome everyone, without exception, regardless of age, race, ethnic background, nationality, gender identity, sexual orientation, family or socioeconomic status, political affiliation, physical or mental ability, faith history, or life experience. We are a church where it is safe to disagree about important things. We have differences in perspective on theology, biblical interpretation. We covenant to expect, uh, accept, respect, and love one another along our faith journeys. Your sexual orientation or gender identity will never disqualify you from any activity at our church. LGBTQIA+, can be baptized, be a member, lead small groups, serve on our leadership team, volunteer with children and youth ministries, play in our band. No matter who you are, where you're from, or what you believe, you are always welcome at our church. In addition, if you thought it was over, it is important for us to note that we are part of a denomination that does not allow pastors to perform same-sex weddings. Our pastor believes in marriage equality within the church and is working and advocating for the, de- for the denomination to change that rule. Until that rule is changed, our pastor is not authorized to perform any same-sex weddings. However, if you are part of a same-sex couple who desire to get married, our pastor will happily help you find an efficient who is authorized to do your wedding. And our pastor will also gladly preach a wedding sermon 
say prayers at your wedding and support your wedding in any way he can. This is the world's definition of diversity. It's scary, isn't it? It's ridiculous. This this should get you upset that the diversity of the church doesn't come from the collection of sins, personal experiences, or political viewpoints, or whatever school you went to, or if you like jazz, and we can all congregate around there, what foods you like. No, the source of the diversity of the church, let's look at verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift to each one of us as individual believers. Grace was given in the form of a gift from Christ. So if we stop there, let's consider this for a second, how, how personal this is. Within the life of the local church body, there is a particular role, a particular ministry of which you are gifted for. And only you can fulfill. And by you fulfilling it, leads to the unity of the church. Now you may serve in a capacity similar to other people, like maybe you're a part of a staff, like a youth staff, or a children's ministry staff, or a pastoral staff. But the uniqueness and personalization of this is such that the role God has placed you in is specifically for you. Only you. Every one of you is vital to the life of the church. And you have a vital role. You have a vital part to play. And this includes you, young people. You profess to know Christ. There's something for you to do. So these are not absolute categories of giftedness. So we can kind of narrow it down and define it. These are maybe umbrella categories. So very general preaching, serving, teaching, Exhorting, giving, leading, showing mercy, compassion, gifts of administration. These are, again, broad categories in which everybody is unique. As John MacArthur calls it, you are spiritual snowflakes. You're all different. This is where the diversity of the church comes out. The very nature of spiritual gifts, it goes completely against the me, me, me culture of today. Completely against. It goes against the culture of today, which is the rise of narcissistic personality disorder. And that's just a fancy term for an elevated view of oneself. And that's just a fancy phrase for pride. And pride says, what will you do for me? Pride says, what will this church do for me? Pride says, how will this church entertain me? Pride says, what, what is it that can keep my attention? Therefore, if those things don't fit, I'm just going just gonna to go somewhere else. Surely there's a place where my shopping list can get checked off. Man, I go to this particular church and they, they talk to me. They ask me questions and they're like interested in my life. I didn't sign up for all that go somewhere else where I can come and leave and those things that, that that's what fits my shopping list oh this is so different what Paul's talking about here because you've been gifted to serve 
You've been gifted to serve. Your spiritual gift is designed for the common good of those around you. Your spiritual gift is others. Others oriented. Your spiritual gift, yes, is for you, but it's also for others around you. It's to build one another up, to love in good deeds. Your spiritual gift is to make much of Christ, it's to, to magnify Him and serve His church. And all you're doing is simply following what Christ Himself has done. Because He didn't come here to be served. He came here to serve. And give His life as a ransom for many. So practical question is, are you serving? You know, if the answer is no, maybe it's because you're too busy. Maybe it's because you've been viewing this all wrong. And again, as I mentioned before, there's a ministry fair coming up next Sunday. Plenty of ministry areas that need help. You know, are you going to look at those needs and say, surely somebody else will do it? Or you'll say, Man, I don't like kids. But you know what? Those kids may not like you either. But this is what happens when all we're doing is thinking about ourselves. And now we're back to what Paul started with in the beginning of this chapter. This is really the key, isn't it? You know it. Our God's an orderly God, and when we get lists, there's a reason those lists exist, and there's a reason why humility is first, because humility is a person struck. Humility is a person struck by what Christ has done for them. And then now, you're almost back to Isaiah chapter 6. You're struck by the glory of Christ, and just like Isaiah, you say, send me. I'll do it. Why? Because I've... I'm coming to grips with what God has done for me. You're not guilted into any kind of service. In in no way do I want to guilt you nor any one of your other pastors guilt you into doing something. No, we want to point you to Christ. We want to calibrate your mind. We want to transform how you think by the renewal of it. Because once you fathom Christ's humility and His condescension, Philippians chapter 2, you, you're not going to be able to fathom how low he went to serve you. Oh, he went low to serve you. The reason why you can't comprehend that is you can't begin to comprehend in your mind the heights from which Christ came. We can't fathom the condescension and how big a gap that was. And so what does that do? It stirs your heart. It stirs your heart and now your heart says, I will do whatever you need me to do. You know, your heart will say, the humble heart will say, it's enough for me to kneel at the, the, at the feet of the king. It's enough. Whatever you need me to do, I will do. Oh, in this obedience, dear church, there is joy in this obedience. This is not burdensome. And the gift you've been given, this is a common phrase that we've all heard, while it's free to you, it wasn't free. And this common saying is freedom isn't free. In verses 8 through 10, Paul here reminds us, man, this freedom of which Christ has gifted you now to serve His church for the purposes of unity, this wasn't free. This came at a cost. In verses 8 through 10, this comes from Psalm 68. What Paul here is doing, you may read those verses like, wow, what is he talking about? About 
about ascending and then descending and then lower parts of the earth. Woo, maybe this is a, another one of those Paul things. Hard to understand. This comes from Psalm 68. And really what Paul is doing here is he's using Psalm 68 to bring about what Christ has done. Give us a visual. Because Psalm 68 gives us this picture of a victorious general. Right? There's this battle and the general's victorious and he's marching up. He's ascending, taking his place on the rightful throne as victorious. And to the victor, as we know, go the spoils. And this victorious Christ, it's picturing that he's made his enemies a footstool. This victorious Christ being being put out in front of us is the victorious Christ who now upholds everything with his righteous right hand. He, he's earned the right to be able to gift you. This conquering, victorious Christ who has now made us, his children, more than conquerors. This is what our Savior has done. And the phrase there, lower parts of the earth, you know, it's used in four other places in Scripture. It's used first in Psalm 63. There, it talks about ascending to the lower parts of the earth had to do with death by murder. Death by execution. It's used, secondly, in Matthew 12. And there, it's talked, it talks about Jonah and about Jonah being in the belly of the fish. The third use of it is in Isaiah 44. It refer, refers to the created earth. And the last usage of it is in Psalm 139, it speaks about a womb. A child in the womb. Those are the only other four uses of it. You see the connection to Christ. It's amazing. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. He was formed in the womb, Psalm 139. He lived on the earth, Isaiah 44. He was buried parallel to Jonah in the belly of the fish, and his death was an exodus. Paul in the lower parts of the earth pointing directly to Christ. And you may ask, why all this? We're talking about unity in the church. Now we're talking about spiritual gifting of each individual. Paul, why go through all this depth to tell us about what it cost? Because Paul wants us to understand there was a price to be paid to be able to gift you. He had to be formed in the womb, live on the earth, suffer all that he did, be executed and be buried in order that he might ascend triumphantly. And now, he can give you gifts. And so should there be any surprise that the fruit of the last couple of years of COVID and the deep privatization of faith, where it's been made okay to not go to church, just log on, do it, whatever you want. The prominent church culture that's all about convenience, entertainment. Not much of walking in a manner worthy, as Paul describes. Therefore, people in the church no longer serving one another unto the Lord because they're not really even together anymore. Should we be surprised at all that much division has arised? Dear church, this is important. This is vital. This is the one, the local church, the only one, the one enterprise that Christ has built. So don't you want to be a part of that? This isn't a franchise that you could buy into and then start your own thing. No, this 
church is owned, wholly owned by Christ. Oh, be reminded that church is so important to Christ. Christ nourishes the church. He cherishes the church. He loves the church. He, he, he died for the church. Christ reminds us, Ephesians chapter 3, it is through the local church that my manifold wisdom will be made known to the world. Through the church. Christ marries the church. Christ unites himself to you by serving you. Now by you serving one another, you can begin to experience the fellowship and the unity that Christ himself prayed for. So I go back to the previous question. Are you serving Christ's church? And you may not know what to do. You may just, I I want to, I just don't know where. Talk to me, talk to one of the other pastors, talk to our deacons, various ministry leaders, because here's what will happen, because John 14 tells us this is what's going to happen. The more obedient you are to Christ, the more your love for Him will grow. The more your love for Him will grow, the more you're going to be obedient to Him. Now we're back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. You're living life in a manner worthy, balanced, appropriate for all the truth you've just been taught. That's what's going to happen. The scales are balanced. You're walking. And when a local body of believers, the church, is functioning like this, Oh, we get, a, we get but a taste of heaven. It's glorious. And so unity, we are to pursue it and protect it. We are to practically apply it through the gifts Christ has given each of us. And fourth, God gifts his church with men who preserve, preserve this unity. Verses 11 through 13 you know, to preserve unity, Christ gifts his church. It's interesting because starting in verse 7, Christ gifts you, the individual. Now, starting in verse 11, Christ gifts the church as well. Right? Towards unity with gifted men in order that these gifted men equip believers for the work of service. You know, that word equip there means to mature, to grow, to be complete. Every bit of even your bulletin in the verse there, Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The apostles and prophets were gifts that Christ gave to the early church in order to establish the church. Apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ. They were, they were delegated certain, uh, certain duties, even certain powers, as it were, healing, miracles of healing. There are no more apostles today. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says this, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So in the beginnings of the church, Christ gifted the church with apostles and prophets. Current day, let's fast forward, Christ continues to gift his church with evangelists, pastors and teachers. Some have understood evangelists there to be modern-day missionaries. I don't necessarily think that that would be wrong to understand it that way. But nonetheless, evangelists are individuals who proclaim the gospel, do so boldly. That's even what the term evangelist, the name evangelist means. Proclaiming the gospel. The evangelist is sent to preach. And yes, there's a sense where we're all evangelists. However, there is a distinction here that God's given a unique gifting to such that 
this person even mobilizes the church towards outreach, towards disciple-making, exercises a certain delegated authority, influences the church. May we pray more for God to flood our church with evangelists. And then pastors and teachers. Just to state the obvious, pastor there is the one who feeds the flock. The word pastor is actually the word shepherd. What do shepherds do? They guide you. They feed you. They they guard you. These men are a gift to the church. Unfortunately, many men, and even some women, they believe themselves to be gifts. So then they in turn gift themselves to whatever church they feel would benefit from their giftedness. Not sent, not affirmed, not accountable, just a free agent. They themselves are the gift, such as not what the Bible tells us here, for it is Christ who gifts churches. Men to shepherd his flock. Are you thankful for your pastor? I started thinking about this. There was a research study recently completed by the religious organization Lifeway. Many of you are familiar with that. A lot of resources, books and such, publisher. And they concluded this. The average tenure of a pastor is four years. Four years. So our pastor has been here four times that. Our pastor is a gift. A gift from the Lord for the building up of the body, for your equipping, so that we may all be built up, that we may attain unity. You know, it's amazing to think in 2012, both Patrick and I were called by the Lord, affirmed by you, the church, ordained, as it were, into ministry in 2012. That's 10 years ago. And then I think about in the 10 years, man, the weight of it has not left. Your shepherds will give an account for you. Their shepherds have been tasked to watch over your souls. Here's what I can say. You are worth it. Because Christ is worth it. You know, do you think this world cares at all about your soul? You think this world cares at all about your soul? And if you do, oh dear friend, don't be so gullible. Don't be so naive. This world cares nothing for yourself. The only thing this world cares about is that you be drawn away from Christ and feed into the further schism and division created by our enemy that he created way back in Genesis. And in verse 13, it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So where do we go to learn more about the Son of God? It says there, of the knowledge of the Son of God, His Word, your church as you read it, Christ says, it is these, the scriptures that testify about me as you. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly as you sit under the preaching of God's word, as you are discipled, as you go to to Sunday school, as you are equipped, 
as you attend our various ministries specific to men and their roles, specific to women and their roles, as you gather corporately together, as you gather together in home fellowship groups, which will be starting here shortly, don't forsake any of that. It's for your good. For the good of the church. Think about that. Your presence at these things leads to unity of the church. So what does that imply? Your absence leads to division. This is the goal, isn't it? The church's goal, the pastor's goal. This is your goal to make much of Christ. To become more like Him. And that's it. You see how it has nothing to do with numbers. It has nothing to do with any worldly metric. It has everything to do with the one characteristic Christ says, that is characteristic of my church. Greater, greater likeness of me. That's what Christ cares about. And characteristics of Christ's church are characteristically united. And so unity, we are to pursue it, protect it, practically apply it through the gifts Christ has given each of us. Christ then gifts the church through pastors and teachers who preserve unity. And our last point for this morning, this unity is to be progressive. Progressive in that it grows, starting in verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body or the building up of itself in love. Biblical unity, dear church, is a unity that grows. As you and I are sanctified, as you and I are becoming more and more and growing more and more into Christ's likeness, we will experience this unity more and more. But this isn't quick. This isn't quick. This is what makes discipleship, this is is what makes small groups so vital where you are challenged. Where, you, where someone can come alongside you and help you walk through the things of life. Point you to the scriptures, help you build a biblical worldview of things and how to, how to be wise. You know, this certainly concludes our time this morning, but it actually also wraps up this particular section in Ephesians 4. And really, this is a call for you, dear church, to grow up. You've got to grow up. Verse 14 begins with, as a result. As a result of what? As a result of your shepherds feeding you, protecting you, guiding you, urging you into greater Christ-likeness, as a result of all that, don't be, Paul says. No longer children that can be easily led astray by false teaching. Don't be tricked by con men. Don't fall into their schemes. And don't let unbelievers trick you into thinking it's okay to not be at church for fear of something. Don't let so-called religious leaders lead you astray by telling you your best life is now and that all you have to do is believe in yourself. Don't let con men trick you into all that prosperity, health and wealth garbage. 
or that the church is all about what you want. Don't let people trick you into this hyper grace in the fact that you can live however you want. You don't need to change. In order to win the world, you've got to be like the world. You know, all this will do is make you like a rudderless boat, as our text implies. You know, I've never been on a boat that's rudderless, but that sounds scary. I have, though, been on an airplane without a rudder. And I can say by experience, that was scary. Why? Because the rudder is important for stabilization. The second most important part of an airplane, outside of the wings, of course, (laughs) is the rudder. In a plane with no rudder, it doesn't matter what wind gusts, you're just going to be blown around. Going left, going right, the pendulum swings wildly. There's no stabilization. And that's what Paul is saying here. Because if you forget the gospel, the exclusive gospel, one spirit, one Lord, one God, one body, one baptism, if you forget that, you're just going to be tossed around. You're just going to be tossed around. And that's the problem. Because someone comes around telling you that maybe the gospel is incomplete or someone comes around trying to tell you that the gospel, we need to add to it or even take some of it away. Oh, we got we to gotta get away from them. And that's the problem. It's, we have too many immature Christians who maybe are still on milk, still on baby food, yet to mature into solid food. So when the latest religious fad rolls around, whether by book or by podcast or more predominantly through music, like cool music, you're sucked away. You know, these are nothing but religious Ponzi schemes. It looks great. You go all in. And as the common saying is, time and truth go hand in hand. You give it enough time, the truth comes out. So it looks great. I go all in. And then the bottom. Just like a Ponzi scheme. So how do you protect yourself from the trickery of men? the schemes of the devil. You have to grow up. Can't be like a child. You know, I love how Proverbs talks about wisdom. Man, so direct. Proverbs says, you want wisdom? Then go get it. <laughs> Literally what it says. You want wisdom? Get it. James, same thing. You want wisdom? Ask for it. Ask for it. Unity, dear church, like sanctification, progresses. It grows. You know, how can you tell that something is fake? Like news or money. It's when you compare that to what is true. What is real. You know, the Lord has appointed the means of grace that have not changed. Reading of scripture, prayer, fellowship, serving, being under the teaching and preaching of God's word. Because when you are when you are immersed in what God has prescribed, then anything peddled to you that does not coincide with what God has said, it's going to quickly look out of place. It's going to look counterfeit. This is how you will grow. And as you grow, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It's interesting there 
the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. It kind of gives this visual, this medical visual of tendons, ligaments. Right? They, they hold parts together. They hold muscle together for its motion, for its progression, for its walk. And those only get strengthened. And we do feel it, don't we? When maybe one of those tendons are severed. Much like anyone with some sort of athletic injury, you've torn a ligament. Yeah, that part is immobile. Though the rest of your body still functions, it's not functioning the way it should be. God in His wisdom gives us this visual of a body. And that's what we are. A body of different parts. So a church that honors the Lord is a church that pursues this. Protects it attains it by practically serving one another, attains it through gifted men who shepherd and preserves this unity. And as the body is built up and matured, unity grows. Then it's progressive. I believe this church to be that kind of church. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. I don't think any of us are expecting perfection. Oh, may we be a church that continues to faithfully follow this path. Looking to Christ. Because, you know, when our gaze is on Christ, when our eyes are fixed on Christ, we're going to want to do nothing but proclaim Him. Exalt Him. Serve Him. Honor Him. And by doing all those things, we are going to become more and more like Him. Let's pray. Lord, this is the obedient life. And I pray, Father, that you do a work, a mighty work in the life of this local church. Lord, that our hearts are stirred to live in the ways that you have prescribed, to be obedient, to pursue you, and thereby pursue unity. And this will be difficult, which is why we're given this reminder. And it gets even more difficult, God, when we take our eyes off. And so I pray, God, for this church, the vitality of unity within this church body is every bit of what the world sees as true unity. How are we, God, to affect this community if your church is not united? And may our unity not be anything from on the surface or anything of what this world would define as unity. Oh, may our unity, Lord, come Firstly, because you have united yourself with us. And so I pray, God, that you do the work that only you can do, which is save. Oh, Lord, there may be some here who are not yet united with you. Therefore, they're not united with your church. Oh, and I I pray, God, break down the walls of their heart. Give them a new heart. Save, God, do the work that only you can do. And may this church, your local church, God, desire faithfulness to you and to you alone. In your name we pray. Amen.